Hello again, dear listener. This is the start of the show. Welcome to Find a Previously Recorded Evening of Storytelling and Otherwise. This episode took place on March 25th, 2019 at the Lido here in Vancouver, which is on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. You'll be hearing from some of the excellent lineup of writers and comedians we had that night, including Jill Silva, Adele Barclay, Brandy Bird, and Doretta Lau. And throughout the episode, you'll hear music from Emily Toyota, who you can find on iTunes and Bandcamp. The song we started the show with is called No More, from their album I Hear You, I'm Here For You. And I'm your host, Cole Nowicki. To find out more about our upcoming live shows, please visit us at afineshow.com or follow us on the social medias at afineshow. Alright, let's get on with it. Enjoy the show. Up first is Jill Silva. She's a comedian currently residing in Tacoma, Washington, which is pretty much the Brooklyn of Seattle, but please don't tell anyone. Her comedy has been called a menace, loud, and sometimes dry. She's featured in Baltimore's X-Fest, Seattle's Intersections Fest, and recently competed at New York City's Devil Cup. Here's Jill. All right, you guys, thanks for coming out on a Monday. By a round of applause, who here had to work today? It's great. How the fuck are you, the rest of you, affording to be in Vancouver? (laughs) I don't understand. I'm looking at you, sir. You did not (laughs) clap. What are you doing instead? Not working. (laughs) It's the life I love. I have a job, uh, but I work with a bunch of super motivated outdoorsy people. You guys know the types? Did you just boo them? (laughs) Great. (laughs) You're going to love this joke. (laughs) They always come in from the weekends with these amazing stories like, last weekend, oh, what did I do? I summited Mount Sai. It was beautiful. Or something like, Oh, I w- and I like paraglided from the peak of Tiger Mountain, dude. <laughs> Deep snow qualmy bros, maybe you know them. Or my favorite. Oh, what did I do? Oh, I just got back from a three-month holiday, and I hiked all 2,680 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail, and I really found myself, you know? And then I come in, and I'm like, oh, yeah? Well, last weekend, I went to an open mic, and afterwards, an old man came up to me and told me I was handsome. (laughs) So, who's having the real adventures here? (laughs) Yeah, be me. Uh, I went through a breakup last year, pretty big breakup. (laughs) Fuck you, I don't... (laughs) Thank you. The rest of you, you just laughed at my handsomeness. You can cheer for my breakup. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It was a complicated one, too, because we both owned property together. Or had kids, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. Thank you. Thank you. Really into owning kids in Vancouver. Got it. (laughs) I'm just kidding, you guys. I don't know, children. Look at me. I look like a librarian who's really into weekend Molly. (laughs) Does anyone have any Molly? Yeah, (laughs) I knew it. No, I don't have kids. No, I believe so much in not having kids that when I heard Beyonce single ladies, I thought she was saying put a ring in it. (laughs) I'm 
Looks like some people know what a Nuva ring is. <laughs> That's great. Try it as a stocking stuffer next year. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> or don't, because you have to refrigerate it. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. I told that joke once at a show, and a dude yelled back at me, you don't have to refrigerate it. And then he got pregnant that night. <laughs> Very weird. Very strange. Uh, I'm a cyclist. We got any cyclists in the house? Great. I asked that at a show last night in Vancouver, and no one clapped. And it was crazy, because I saw like 57 bicycles on the way to the venue. There's no, you all are much more honest. Uh, I live in Tacoma, though, as Cole mentioned, and there's not as much infrastructure as this beautiful city has. It's amazing. Uh, but because of that, it means you can get a little aggressive on the streets, if you know what I mean. I was riding home after a show once, and this car was pulling up alongside me, and this dude yelled out the window, Hey, bitch on the bike! <laughs> and I was like, whoa. But also, why the fuck are you even talking to me? What are you, on his side? I don't. <laughs> Thank you. So I rip my head around, getting ready to rip him a new anus, as they say. When I catch him out of the corner of my eye, and he's smiling, thumbs up, pointing at my bike. Which is when I realize that what he actually said was, Hey, bitchin' bike. <laughs> oh. What I'm trying to say is my bike gets catcalled more than I do. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, I did get catcalled once, though, under like a freeway underpass in Seattle, so it was pretty romantic. <laughs> I was running to catch a bus, and just as I ran past a real rough-looking dude, I heard him go, eh, beautiful. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you too. <laughs> It's fine, though. I know what I look like. I chose to look like this. <laughs> it's good, though. I'm having a good time. Uh, I'm in a new relationship. You all nailed it that time. Good job. <laughs> uh, I got a problem, though, and I don't know if this is relatable, so maybe you all can help me out. Let me know if this is relatable. Uh, he comes really hard. Oh, you thought just because there was poetry tonight, I wasn't going to talk about cum? Jesus Christ. <laughs> Comes really hard. Is that not relatable, sir? It's still a no. <laughs> it's still a no. I'm, like, concerned, though, because it's, like, a lot. It's, like, a lot. It's, like, too much. He does not hydrate enough to come that hard. <laughs> I'm medically concerned. And I don't do the thing you're supposed to do post-coitus, which is like, get up, wipe off, pee. Thank you. <laughs> For the rest of you who didn't affirm me, you've never been to a gynecologist. <laughs> and that's on you. Also, you're in Canada. You should be going to gynecologists like every day. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Emma. <laughs> it's important. No, I do what any goddamn patriotic American and Canadian should do after they come real hard, and that's fall the fuck asleep. <laughs> what, does everyone in the back just have second days? I don't understand. 
But because of that, because I fall asleep, that means that gives all night for all that come <laughs> to settle in my cavernous vagina. <laughs> you all need to get on board with my cavernous cunt like immediately. <laughs> Thank you. It's pretty cool. <laughs> but that means I get up in the morning, right? I get up, I get dressed, I get on my bike. <laughs> That's not the joke. <laughs> it's my form of transportation. <laughs> I ride to work. <laughs> I'm at work talking to my boss about what I need to do for the day. When all of a sudden, all of that cum <laughs> falls out. Like a cork being pulled from the bottom of a water barrel. <laughs> if you're not laughing, you're not coming hard enough. <laughs> and that's on you. Sir in the, in the front with no Monday job. <laughs> that's fine though. I'm an anxious person, uh, so I'm a fan of yoga. Do a lot of yoga. Uh, some of you look unfamiliar with that, which again is mind-blowing in Vancouver. I saw seven hot yoga studios between here and my Airbnb, which is only at Fraser and 10th, so congratulations. <laughs> uh, if you haven't tried it, you gotta give it a go. It's a really wonderful form to practice strength, focus, uh, and it's also literally the only form of exercise that ends in a nap. Some of you seem concerned, so I'm going to demonstrate what that looks like. So at the end of every yoga class, you just lie down on the ground like this. You know, relax. And then the instructor says something along the lines of, and now is the time for your final shavasana. <laughs> I want to thank you for letting me guide you through your practice today. But I also want you to thank yourself for finding the courage to make it here. <laughs> what, in between binge watching Gilmore Girls again <laughs> and stalking your crush's Ancestry.com profile? You've got a lot of truths going on. So be sure to drink plenty of fluids eat small amounts of really expensive food. <laughs> and I hope to see you again very soon. Or whenever you get another group on for this shit, I don't <laughs> care. Thank you. Thank you. I did just stand up. Thank you. <laughs> Up next is Adele Barclay. She's the recipient of the 2016 Lit Pop Award for Poetry and the 2016 Walrus Reader's Choice Award for Poetry and has been nominated for a Pouchard Prize. Her debut poetry collection, If I Were in a Cage, I'd Reach Out for You from Nightwood Editions in 2016, won the 2017 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. Her second collection of poetry, Renaissance Normcore, came out with Nightwood Editions in the fall of 2019. Here's Adele. Hello. Oh, it's so wonderful to be here. Um, I performed at Fine two years ago, so the first March. So I'm happy to be back here two years later. Um, 
I'm going to start off with a poem about Fiona Apple. I write a lot about Fiona Apple, and if you ever, yeah, yeah, you, you've heard of her. If you've ever heard her sweet, dark angel voice, you get it. In a grocery store parking lot, Fiona Apple cries while tucked into the passenger seat of her father's car. What she thought was a dove turned out to be a plastic bag. I saved you half of the sandwich, and it became a carnival tent where your ribs were the poles defining my fourth house of home, family, and personal foundations. I know it isn't fair. How do we choose how we love? Um, and also, I, was, I performed here two years ago, um, and I had just uh, met someone. And now it's two years later, and we're celebrating our two-year anniversary. Yes. Um, so I remember performing here and then being with my friends and being like, I think I met someone um, at an awkward sex party, but I think it'll last. And so far, so good. Um, so thank you for all sort of inadvertently being part of our like anniversary um, binge. So early into our relationship, this person had a birthday. And um, I didn't know what to get them. Like getting them a material gift seemed like way too intense. What do you do if you like start dating someone and then immediately it's their birthday? You're like, fuck. Um, so I did something like not, you know, that I thought was less intense than a material gift. And I wrote them a poem using words from their like famous grandmother who is a poet. Um, <laughs> that's not intense at all and gave that to them for their birthday. The poem's called Four Heiress. I want to write you, so I'm reading your grandmother's poetry. You emerge under streetlights, humming with your own strength. Petra Mueller writes in David's hands. The force of your left fist, your reassurance I have a resilient body. How can I say, oh, this is only the beginning, when this is only the beginning? Thank you. Um, I also wrote this poem from around that time, and it's called Cardinal Signs Just Want to Have Fun. <laughs> if you're into astrology, we can talk about that later. I can't sleep beside you yet. Sometimes you make a whining noise. Velvet and leather, Cancer and Aries. My favorite sensation is immersion in water, and this makes you want to set me on fire, literally. After you fucked the blood out of me in your parents' bathtub, you said you felt less stone. I slipped into your t-shirt and bed, the pink full moon arrived. You took a photo before cleaning the mess. <laughs> what, you thought because there's comedy tonight there wasn't going to be blood and cum? <laughs> I want to eat all of the ocean. You are fire, fire, earth. 
I am water, water, air. You almost keeled over when I mentioned my Scorpio moon and Libra rising. I guess this has happened before. <laughs> I'm relieved the house you invited me to isn't your childhood home because that has definitely happened before. <laughs> you have to fuck me at least five times before I'll flirt with you. <laughs> Anyone relate to that? <laughs> any other are there any other cancers, water signs? Um, and this next poem is um, kind of an ode to my favorite candy flavor and Maggie Nelson. Blue raspberry. What I know, when I met you, a blue rush began. Maggie Nelson. I pull a Tupperware of orange slices out from under the bed for half time. Toss you a bottle of blue raspberry Gatorade. Your jock shows when you pound my cunt. There's a puddle of blood and cum in the alley behind the community center. If you're going to destroy my fishnets, please steal me more from shoppers, size C or D. I've never met someone so confident when shoplifting, yet so bashful about the size of their cock. I give you a ring pop that turned your tongue blue. You looked like a little white boy in a toque skulking down the drive. What I'm learning, even daddies have boundaries, and some baby girls lick until it burns. Thank you. Um, yeah, continuing with the, with the candied train, um, this poem is called We All Want Marshmallows. Um, and when I posted it on Twitter, it was, it was published in Cascadia Magazine. I was like, here's my poem. I don't know what it's about. Uh, my friend Hannah McGregor said, it's about being gay and doing crimes. <laughs> so I'll take that. Katie, forest fires melt the air half an hour from where you live. The sky is a black sheep bleeding, and I can't even see the wolf in the photo you texted me. But I feel his snarl in your voice over speakerphone. Heat is an apex predator in a desert valley. I keep promising to visit and pick up flats of peaches to can, but Greyhound canceled its bus service in Western Canada. You biked to the north end of Galliano Island, and a month later I followed. There were two coves to swim in, and an island to fuck on. Our illegal fire by the water lasted only minutes before a woman walking her German shepherd yelled, we all want marshmallows. <laughs> we slept on a peninsula, and I whimpered all night because the voice that whispers, you're safe, needed to let go. And when I did, I felt my boundaries dissolve into waves and wind. Um, and I'd like to point out, like in, in poetry, like the I could, isn't necessarily me, and I would never have an illegal fire during the fire ban. <laughs> this is, you know. Okay, uh, I have two more poems, and they're going to take a little bit of a turn. Um, and 
like just a heads up yeah they deal with rape culture not in like super explicit ways but kind of in like the broiling way that I think we're all used to um but just a heads up in case yeah you need to do anything to make yourselves feel comfortable and take care of yourselves um and I wanted to read this next poem because I found out today that Mel B and Jerry Hallowell from yeah some people are giggling they know what's up Turns out they had a sexual relationship in the glory days of the Spice Girls. Yeah. Right? I'm just really I'm just really happy about that. It's so validating. I bought so many weird Spice Girl like stickers. Anyway, um, at a very important time. Um, so I was thinking, I was like, do I have a Spice Girls poem? And I actually weirdly do. Um, <laughs> I've, it's many things, but they, they come up in it. So that was my, my thinking there. I wanted to honor that girl power time that was really deeply gay. <laughs> the poem is called, I Can't Extract the Memory from the Poem. And it opens with a line from Anne Curson. Memory makes what it needs to make. Rachel Lee Cook teaches, a girl is prettier without glasses and drugs are a rogue cast iron in the kitchen of our tender brains. At nine, I need glasses and don't tell anyone for a year. Meander up to the chalkboard claiming, there's too much glare. My father barrels through kitchen walls and there's no one to tell. Meanwhile, girl power floods the radio. The Spice Girls sing, stop right now. Gwen Stefani's swimmer's arms throttle the cover of Tragic Kingdom. I earn my bronze cross, swimming endless lengths to one day save lives. We practice CPR on a dummy as the pool dampens the squeals and booms of Aqua's Barbie girl. At 16, my father instructs me to wear contacts and bikinis and highlight my dark hair. I tell him I've been bleeding daily for a year and need to be taken to a doctor. All right, <laughs> we're gonna keep going. Um, thank you for that. And this next poem is called, How Old Were You When You Were First Threatened with Libel? Libel is an issue in this country or rather laws pertaining to libel are. I was 13 and I collected a compendium of jokes about my middle school teachers, emailed the manifesto to Lacey and Richard. I'd say the compilation was crowdsourced, but I still signed my name. The email spread like wildfire through fields of hotmail accounts. And I learned about how viral cruel pathways are, how they march directly to a library's printers. The vice principal was leaning against the classroom doorway of my 56 student French immersion class. I hoped she was there to pull me away from a looming test. And she did. She pulled me to the principal's office, printout of all the nicknames and taunts in hand. They couldn't believe it was me, an affable straight A student penning such mean-spirited jabs. Surely it was the work of my friend Owen who'd just been suspended for setting off fireworks in the parking lot. But no, it was me. 
The principal said what I'd written was libel and the teachers could sue me, a 13-year-old girl, for defamation. I was suspended and kicked off the Quebec trip. I had to apologize individually to each teacher and make a speech in front of the entire school about writing bad things on the internet. <laughs> when I apologized, one of my teachers threatened, if you were 18 and male, and then the principal cut him off. He had a black belt. He was the one who taught the girls self-defense. I had suggested that maybe he enjoyed teaching us self-defense a little too much. He made us spar with each other in front of him. He had me grip him in a headlock. He singled me out as an example of a timid girl who cast her eyes down, which made me more likely to be raped. I had wanted to tell him that really, it was too late. He also singled me out as the best writer in the class, even after my transgression. He would bitterly announce my superior writing skills and then complain about the new medication he was on because of the stress I'd caused him. On the last day of grade eight, I dropped a rotten pasanka egg that I hadn't had the chance to hollow out in art class because of my suspension on the carpet of his classroom floor. It was covered in colorful wax and full of awful yolk. He cleaned it up with paper towels and then took a picture of me and my friends on a disposable camera. Thank you. Next up is Brandy Bird. They are a Salto and Cree poet from Treaty 1 territory, currently living and learning on Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh land. Their work has been published in Poetry's Dead, Pearls, and Prism. Their debut chapbook, I Am Still Too Much, from Raheel's Ghost Press, came out in the spring of 2019, and is a work highly concerned with place and family, and was written with the prairies always in heart and mind. Here's Brandy. Thank you to the Lido and to Fine for inviting me to do this. This is really cool. I'm incredibly nervous, but that's just how it goes. So. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so this poem is kind of gross. It's about a tick, but I'm kind of gross, so we just have to deal. It's called The Tick. My name spilled on the ground like a bucket of pickle from my grandpa's boat. My name on a dirt dress pulled from discards, initialed in Sharpie on the white tag dragged in the dumb dime sun. The metal of the basin where my mother was bathed, where I am bathed, head checked for ticks with matches at hand. I don't know how to swim, but I know how to run in the field before tick season dies, fat, bloody. One dug into my skin like I'm a fish being pulled to shore, anchored by its head in my head. I already have a reputation. My blood and the blood of deer before me, a history of it, a story I have told myself, have made my mother tell me at night. She brushes the tick away. It burns just a little. This is called 1999. Thank you. Recollect a glacial lake in the eye of my mother. Standing in the fan of Lake Agassiz, her white hands on my back against the wind of a level plain, a canticle. 
This fertile valley, synchrony of silt and water split into three by rivers, and me, cold ply of fingers on my sister against a wall of neon VLT. This gamble of glacial water, prairie noise, the nickel-plated satisfaction of waiting for the rise of ice on the riverbank, and my mother's seasons measured by quarters running low. Who knows her habits? Who knows where she'll be tomorrow? My face reflected in hers, so alike in water, porous, plump, identical. This is about my hometown in Selkirk, Manitoba, and it's simply called Selkirk, Manitoba. There is a storm of wild roses over Selkirk, Manitoba. They grow from all sides, stems crooked, blooms thick over streets, Maine, Eveline, and Mercy. The flowers bleed a soft light like a wound underwater, the Red River a current growing darker as petals fall from the sky. They float upstream to the catfish grounds, to the interlake, to the floodway, a scour of petals on the riverbank, clay pinking in waves. The lift bridge opens in the chip of thorns and unfolds a trellis to drift through, cradling rose hips on the rusted spokes. The old water tower disappears from view, unnamed Selkirk, gone in a rush of green. People turn into stamen and pistol, merge, become roses. They grow in the cracks of streets planted where they stood, pointing at thorns that cut through the roofs of low-income housing. Red round berries fall to the ground, ferment, and the prairie swallows them drunk and whole. The body of the town, a rose bush, a dry thicket, a target for lightning strikes, waiting to catch fire and begin again. And this is about where I live now. It's called King Tide. Say Musqueam, say Squamish, say Swaletooth, say King Tide on a stone. The coastline cracking on the back of the beach and the sun reflected off False Creek, all lost in the homecoming of water. I trespass on Beer Island, the Pacific waning from the seawall. The police tape a warning of water and the moon and myself in retreat. An apogee, the prairies in the pink of my cheeks, perched on a rock with a king can. I take in the waves like I breathe, shallow from the top of my chest, measuring time by them. The land floods more each year. My house a floodplain, my home so far from here. The ocean erodes what is man-made, what is upkept, what is mild. This new year is a territory with a name I can't speak. It's not mine to tell. And this last poem, this last poem is um, something very new. So I was a little hesitant to read it, but I'm just going to do it because that's what I'm here for. <laughs> it's called Miskosippi, which means Red River and Cree. Every spring, this valley floods and gives back what my mother threw away. My eyes are her witness to the river's breath, the tilt of the earth swinging in a barometric cradle. I'm pushed in my baptismal dress, white as sandstone eroded by catfish, the sturgeon at my chest. The red dams my mouth, my mother's hands on me in the current, my head beneath waves. I'm drunk on red water river. I know love is different than endurance, but I tread water for a season. Floating north in the crackling sun of spring, there is a plain, wet as an eye, all-seeing. It will see me at the riverbank, muddy and white. It will welcome me back again. 
Thank you. Our final performer of the evening was Doretta Lau. She's the author of the short story collection, How Does a Single Blade of Grass Thank the Sun? from Nightwood Editions in 2014. She splits her time between Vancouver and Hong Kong where she is writing a comic novel about a dysfunctional workplace called We Are Underlings and a collection of poetry about grief. Here's Doretta. So I have these buttons that have ramen pictures on them. They're free. They're at the merch table with my book. So you can check my book out. And there's free buttons. So, All right. So I decided I was going to read something that's totally new. I'm in the middle of working on a novel. Um, it's called We Are Underlings. And uh, it's inspired by Weekend at Bernie's and um, Ghosts. <sighs> All right, sorry, I was like running, so I'm going to take a breath. All right, so what do you need to know? It's set in Hong Kong, um, and essentially, if you've ever had a bad job, this is the book for you, because it's all about every bad job you've ever had, and uh, that exit plan, that sweet, sweet plan when you want to quit. All right, so... Death is only the beginning at my workplace, The Nine Circles, a theme park in Hong Kong devoted to dying, death, and the afterlife. Our institution is a homegrown rival to the international entertainment conglomerates in the Asia-Pacific region. If you have not heard of us, it's likely because we are not yet open to the public. In just 10 weeks, you may pay us a visit to discover what happens when you die without experiencing the messiness of dying. There are many attractions featuring historical figures, ghosts, and deities scattered across the park grounds with refreshment stands and gift stops along the way. Perhaps you can't wait to witness Chairman Mao working on calligraphy, a historical document that is an artifact in its own right. Across the way, Mother Teresa is tending to some orphans with the most beatific smile on her face. The afterlife team worked very hard to create that expression of empathy and mystery. It's the Mona Lisa of our times, a quotation attributed to Executive Director Sukumar Das in our press kit, but written by yours truly, Zita Chang, after a three-hour meeting between marketing and hauntology, where half the team wanted to reference a famous Asian painting instead to better connect with local audiences, but no one could come up with a suitable alternative, so we stuck with Da Vinci's masterpiece. Despite these meaningful displays, marketing predicts that the dioramas featuring serial killers will fare best. We're starting with Jack the Ripper and working through everyone's secret favorites. Afterlife is rushing to mount a Golden State killer attraction in time for the grand opening so we can build on the popularity of Michelle McNamara's books about his crimes. Out of respect for victims, we only recreate scenes if we have secured life rights from surviving family members, or 50 years has passed after death. I mean, we're not monsters, we just want to profit off monstrosities. (laughs) Though all team members contribute to the Nine Circles vision, it is the work of the hauntologist that drives our mission. Not to theme park explain, but just so we're clear. Hauntology is the study of dying, death, and the afterlife. Though these subjects are the purview of anthropologists and historians in many universities and research centers around the world, at the Nine Circles and other institutions of the same ilk, 
Um, ontology provides a more nuanced approach to the post-human condition while applying an entertaining touch. Where are the heaping spoonful of refined sugar that helps the medicine go down? It's just before 2 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, but all my colleagues are buzzing with anxious energy because there's a public fire we must extinguish as soon as possible. What's the drama? The Hong Kong Gazette published an article lambasting our institution for upholding inequality and colonial mentality through our research and hiring practices, naming and shaming three of the hauntologists, Gerald Zhang, architecture, Wan Jun, Chinese and Aboriginal cultures. I keep telling the team we need to use the word indigenous, but no one will listen to me. And Gemma Yang, Hong Kong sociologies. One of the paper's star reporters, Kenneth Chung, wrote the piece in a private Slack channel called What's for Lunch. Life rights manager Charles Doty an annotated each sentence, speculated on the possible sources. Zita, have you been talking to the press? He wrote in reference to a paragraph about a cedar bentwood burial box that I often proclaim during drinks is stolen property and should be repatriated immediately to the family to whom it belongs. You kid, you kid, I wrote in response, adding half a dozen emojis. I'm pretty sure that technology monitors our computer usage, and I am not going down because of my compulsive 500 messages a day slack habits. Better paranoid than unemployed is my motto. <laughs> if I'm being honest, but you won't catch me repeating this to a reporter, I agree that the nine circles has a long way to go to divest itself of shady practices and ideology. It troubles me that the institution has appointed itself the steward for bodies, burial boxes, and ceremonial robes from around the world that other people obtained in less than savory ways, most often colonial looting and wartime plunder. Somehow, we absolve ourselves of responsibility because the provenance cannot be proven beyond the last owner, and we don't have the resources to dig any deeper. I have a theory the Nine Circles is cursed because we've taken the worst course of action or inaction at every turn. Over the past three years, no one on staff of over 500 people has conceived a child. A statistical anomaly, I'm sure, signifies that something's rotten in the state of hell. No amount of charity can cancel the huge karmic debt we are incurring at this workplace. But until I figure out another way to pay my rent and buy groceries, I'm laying low and keeping my resume fresh. I have worked at the Nine Circles for three years in the marketing department. I joined six months after the death of my father, Arnold Chang, a historian known for his particular interest in plagues and outbreaks. His best-selling book, Severe Acute Reporting Syndrome, examines the rhetoric in medical reportage during and after SARS. His familiarity with Hong Kong and Vancouver provided insight no other research could equal. Arnold's writing is so compelling that when I'm reading his work, I forget he's the same person that changed my diapers, told corny jokes, and drove me to skating practice at dawn. Everything felt darker after I lost him. A few days after Dad's funeral, I was in my pajamas eating salted caramel ice cream straight out of the container for breakfast. I use a bowl when I'm not caught in the undertow of depression. When I saw a video of executive director, Sakumar Das pontificating about a hauntological institution that would showcase Hong Kong to the world while serving the public. I thought that I'd be a good fit for the organization, having worked in the public and private sectors in Canada, the US, United Kingdom, and Hong Kong. After all, I am a team player, even if I'm not a people person. 
I was ready to be of service, to make a contribution to society, to further the research of Arnold Chang. So I put the tub of ice cream back in the freezer and started working on the application, a 20-page document that seems designed to scare off anyone who can't afford to accept a low-paying prestige job. I also thought I might be able to find my dad again through my work, perhaps befriend the afterlife team and have them do me personal favors beyond the scope of their authority, like make my dad's voice into an app to replace Siri so that he gives me the advice I never wanted while he was still alive. But now that he's dead, I'd give anything to be nagged one last time with a misplaced display of love. Hey Arnold, do I need a jacket today? All right, thank you. That is it. That's the end of the show. Thanks again to all of the performers. Emily Toyota, the leader for having us. Matt Crisco for recording us. CITR for playing us. And you, dear listener, for listening. We'll leave you with Emily Toyota's Planes and Cranes.
You've been listening to Fine on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from unceded Musqueam territory at the University of British Columbia.